Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode number 138. I'm Jessica Duffin, I'm an endo warrior, an endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them I don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU which is buonline.co.uk and you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. Okay, I can't wait to give you guys an update about the elemental diet for SIBO because I am recording this at 8.30 in the morning and I'm due on and I could be eating my words in a couple of hours, but I really expected to have a lot of inflammation and just a lot of kind of signs of hormonal imbalances and a lot of pain come my period because essentially I've been having just a lot of sugar because that's what the carbs are, right, in the elemental diet. But obviously this time round, I've been really, really working on trying to keep my blood sugar balanced. And of course, um, my gut has been healing throughout this three-week process. Um, But because I was just having this sugar, I thought that my period could be bad. But right now, I feel absolutely fine. Like I could be in another part of my cycle. I don't feel premenstrual. So I'm really interested to find out what happens. And yeah, I mean... I'm, it's, this is weird. I'm due on and I'm recording a podcast at 8.30 in the morning. So um, I'll keep, yeah, I'm going to do some kind of update. I probably won't do another podcast episode because I don't want to bore you guys, but um, maybe I'll do it on Instagram or something and, and let you guys know how it goes. I've got four, four more, well, four and a bit days, if you count the fast for the SIBO test. Um, so yeah, it'll be over soon five days really if you count today but yeah it'll be over soon so anyway last week I took you guys through the ways in which inflammation gut health and hormone levels can increase bloating in the lead up to your period and this week I want to give you some tools to actually alleviate that bloating now you know what's happening so I'm going to give you two types of tools this week one set to deal with in the moment of 
in the moment of bloating and another set which are long-term strategies to help you to address the root cause. So let's start with the tools you can use in the moment. You can start, you know, using them as soon as you get your hands on them. Many of these tools I'm about to share are based on my training with world-leading SIBO doctor, Dr. Alison C. Becker, um, but these aren't SIBO-specific supplements that I'm talking about. These are symptom-based supplements. So if someone had IBS and they had bloating, it would work for that. If they had another condition, they had bloating, it would work for that. These aren't SIBO-specific. So I'm using Dr. Alison Seebecker's doses that she um, trained us in, and they're safe and effective. But if you'd like a reference for these doses, they are actually available on her website under the handout section in a handout called Symptomatic Relief Guide. So these doses are available publicly. You don't need a prescription for, for them. You could get them without me, but always consult your doctor before starting new supplements. And if you want the reference, the link is in the show notes. So number one is using a prokinetic. A prokinetic, it's either a pharmaceutical drug or it's a natural treatment, uh, a natural supplement, which improves gut motility in the small intestine. So it increases transit time in the small intestine and it also stimulates the migrating motor complex in the small intestine, which is that wave-like motion that clears bacteria from food out of the small intestine and into the large intestine. And, And I've talked about this before in my SIBO episodes So when the migrating motor complex is slowed, this is when we're at risk of developing SIBO. And one study actually found that 100% of participants with endometriosis also had gut motility dysfunction. So that's really, really interesting. But anyway, a prokinetic doesn't stimulate a bowel movement. It's not a laxative, by the way. So It doesn't get to work on your large intestine, but it goes to work on your small intestine. Your small intestine and your large intestine have two motilities, they're kind of two different functions. The small intestine motility should take two hours for transit time, where the large intestine takes 24 hours. So it takes 24 hours to basically make waste products, like a stool from when you eat and when that food goes from the small intestine into the large intestine, or at least it should do. So... Essentially, it's aiding you to digest and move your food into the large intestine and to clear gas and bacteria out of the small intestine too. So that's what we're using it for in this purpose for the gas. We want to move it through your intestines. So to stimulate the migrating motor complex, we can use a prokinetic at night, but for bloating, you can take it during the day and this will support that healthy transit time of gas accumulating in the intestines. So this can be really helpful in the second half of our cycle when progesterone is naturally causing things to slow down, like we discussed last week. The two natural supplements you could try are ginger and a tincture called STW5. I think that's what it's known as in America. That's kind of what we're trained in. But over here in the UK, it's called Ibogast or Ibogast, I-B-E-R-O-G-A-S-T, the... um, You can obviously look up the spelling in the show notes. From what I can tell in most of the world, it's it's branded as Ibogast, but I think in America it's branded as STW5. So for ginger, there are many prokinetic formulas and I've put some of the best ones in the show notes. And you would just take the label toast twice a day, one to two hours after a meal 
or as needed, just be sure not to exceed the recommended dose on the label or to exceed 2000 milligrams of ginger per day. So 2000 milligrams is the safe dose. So STW5 is a tincture, like I said, and you would need about 20 drops with meals or as and when needed. I do just want to caution here that some of the ginger formulations can cause ginger burn, which is like a hot burning sensation in the diaphragm area. So if you have acid reflux, this might not be the best option for you. You can normally get rid of the feeling through drinking water, but some formulations are less ginger burn causing, and I've highlighted which ones in the show notes. Ginger, being a spice, can also irritate bladder symptoms if you have interstitial cystitis. So this is something to consider. And normally I find the formulas which cause the least ginger burn cause the least bladder problems. And secondly, because STW5 also contains alcohol, I find this to also irritate the bladder in people with interstitial cystitis. Not everyone, but some people. So just be cautious with these two and experiment until you find a formula that works for you. I now have prokinetics that do work for me. Um, I use the ones that cause the least ginger burn and I'm actually, they're actually coupled with a pharmaceutical prokinetic because the natural ones just aren't strong enough for me and then I'm, I'm relapsing on my SIBO. But the natural ones that I use no longer cause me ginger burns. So those are in the show notes. So finally, if you experience pain with prokinetics, it's normally due to your motility actually starting to get to work, which can cause muscle contractions at first. But if the pain is severe or it's persistent, it doesn't go away. It may be that you have an obstruction or adhesion disrupting the motility flow and working against it, basically. So if that's the case, stop using the prokinetic and see a visceral manipulation therapist who can assess your gut for adhesions and obstructions. Okay, number two is peppermint oil. Peppermint oil is actually a smooth muscle relaxant and is great for abdominal pain if you get pain with your bloating. And generally, it's really wonderful for pretty much all IBS symptoms. And recent research has shown its effectiveness in multiple symptoms of IBS. So it's a great option if you have IBS issues frequently with endo and also in the lead up to your period. So you could, of course, try the tea. And some people do find that to be effective, but generally peppermint oil tends to be stronger. If you want to go for a tea, I would just make sure it's really strong for it to actually do some work. For capsules, you want enteric coated peppermint oil, which are capsules that have a coating on them, which protects them from stomach acid so that the peppermint is released lower down in the intestines where we want it. And it's not kind of getting used up in the stomach. And this is pretty much the standard, so you should be able to find them anywhere. And you would just need to follow the label dose and take as needed, though you can take them every day during the second half of your cycle, as the effects of peppermint oil tend to be stronger when taken consistently, so you could just take them every day. However, if you have acid reflux, peppermint may not be the best option for you, as it can sometimes cause acid reflux, because it relaxes the esophagus so it can open up the esophagus so then acid can flow back upwards. You could test yourself on one dose and maybe see how you respond um, and then take it from there. But if you're prone to acid reflux or nausea, you might want to consider some other options. 
If you do want to give peppermint oil a go, pills are the least likely to cause acid reflux or nausea as opposed to peppermint tea or say like a a tincture. Lastly, peppermint oil can slightly slow down motility. So if you are noticing sluggish motility already due to progesterone in the second half of your cycle, either use one of the other options or if you really want to take peppermint oil, also use a prokinetic. Oddly, if you have interstitial cystitis, it appears peppermint oil may help or it may actually irritate. There's some research going on at the moment specifically on peppermint oil for the treatment of interstitial cystitis and some practitioners advise using the tea etc where I've heard others warn against it so it's a little bit conflicting at the moment. Personally I find applying topical peppermint oil helps with my interstitial cystitis pain and this would be because it's a muscle a smooth muscle relaxant right so it's calming down any contractions and cramping. But if I drink the tea, I find it causes a burning feeling inside my bladder. So I think you have to see how you respond personally, but I'm very curious to find out the outcome of this study. Number three is activated charcoal. Activated charcoal absorbs gas, so it's really helpful for any bloating which has been caused by gut issues during the second half of your cycle. You can take activated charcoal in a supplement or in powder form, Uh, With the powder, you would just mix the powder into water. And you could take this as and when needed, but you do need to ensure that you're taking it at least 30 minutes before a meal and an hour or an hour after a meal because it just doesn't, it doesn't just absorb gas, it absorbs nutrients too. And this would be the same for supplements. You don't want to be spending money on lovely supplements for the charcoal to just be absorbing them all. And you can take up to a thousand milligrams per dose or just follow the label dose. And you can do that four times a day, spacing the doses out by at least two hours. Just don't exceed more than four grams of charcoal a day, you know, 4,000 milligrams of charcoal a day. Lastly, charcoal can sometimes cause constipation. So of course, we don't want to worsen that if you're already struggling with sluggish bowels in the second half of your cycle. And if you are, then you can take magnesium in addition, which I'll share in the next point. So number four is magnesium. Now, while magnesium won't directly help with your bloating, it is great for constipation. So if this is one of the root causes of your bloating in the second half of your cycle, magnesium is a good tool to aid with this. Magnesium is also a nutrient that most of us are deficient in, and it gets used up with chronic stress and during menstruation. And so when we're low in magnesium, it can actually worsen PMS, pain and fatigue. So this is a great supplement for endometriosis and it's an essential supplement that I really use with pretty much all of my clients. I try to get them to up their magnesium intake in one way or another, whether it's kind of topically through baths um, or sprays or as a supplement form, as it's quite difficult to get enough magnesium from food. The best options for constipation would be citrate or oxide and I personally prefer oxide for anyone with interstitial cystitis as the magnesium citrate can be irritating to the bladder in some people. You can take between 500 milligrams to 1000 milligrams in the evening at bedtime and it's best to start at a lower dose like 500 milligrams to see how you react to it as if you take too much it might cause you diarrhea. 
The aim is to have a bowel movement come the morning. So that's the sign you want to see um, to know that it's working. And normally it does take about two to three days to get to get to work. So do be patient. If you don't have a bowel movement in this time, move up to a higher dose. Often a thousand milligrams is the dose most people find works for them. However, as I said, you can go higher. You just can't exceed 2000 milligrams and you would need to ensure that you're increasing your dose slowly. Finally, make sure you take your dose two hours after food because otherwise that can interfere with the effects of the magnesium. Hopefully by supporting your gut to keep to a healthy flow during the second half of your cycle, you'll experience lessened bloating as waste and gas isn't hanging around for so long in your intestines. Number five is abdominal massage. And for the purposes of bloating, you could either use the I love you massage or Avigo therapy. Both of these you can do at home by yourself. And additionally, these massages are great for constipation and sluggish fertility. So if you're noticing those to be an issue in your luteal phase, I would recommend trying one of these. They also put your body into the rest and digest state. So if you're working on trying to calm down your nervous system so that your pain decreases over time, which I've been talking a lot about on Instagram, then these are a great addition to your routine. And I'm using Avigo therapy every evening at the moment whilst I'm doing my SIBO treatment. And wow, honestly, I I don't think I felt so, yeah, so in my rest and digest state in potentially years. I mean, really, I am a, my, my baseline level is stressed and I feel more cared for and nourished than I, than I ever have right now. Um, and a large part of that is to do with the Arvigo therapy. So I do really recommend it. Um, you don't need to do both of these massages. One or the other is fine. However, if you want the added benefit of adhesion release and better periods and less endo pain, then a Vigo massage is the way to go. The I love you massage is really only going to be getting to work on your like constipation, your motility, your bloating. And like I said, it will put you in rest and digest, but it's not really going to help with your periods or with endo. The I love you massage is a simple massage where you literally trace the letters I, L and U over your intestines repeatedly. There's um, a free, there are actually loads of free YouTube videos on how to do this. And I've linked to one in the show notes um, that isn't being demonstrated on, on babies because it's used in babies quite a lot. So I found one by a physio for people with IBS issues. With Avigo therapy, you first need to be taught how to do it on yourself by a practitioner. The sessions are usually pretty affordable and can be taught in about 30 to 45 minutes. And then after that, you don't need to pay for any more sessions. You can just start performing the massage on yourself. So it's, you know, it's not free, but it is much more affordable. And the sessions are normally somewhere around like 45 to 70 pounds. I've linked to a wonderful practitioner in the show notes called Tara. She's one of my colleagues and to the practitioner directory if you want to work with someone else. And you can do these sessions just over Zoom. They can teach you over Zoom. You don't need to see them in person. You can do these massages, you know, either one of these massages daily. And I personally recommend using them in the evenings before bed, which is when the migrating motor complex really gets to work. And as these help to stimulate it, 
they'll give your motility a nice boost in the evening, meaning that it will help you to clear gas out overnight. Of course, if you're feeling bloated in the moment and want some instant relief, you could perform these massages when needed, as long as they're not painful for you to do. You know, the bloating isn't so bad that it feels painful to perform them. Both the massages take just 10 to 15 minutes at the most, so they're really quick to do. Number six is a slightly different one, and that's lymphatic drainage. We're not addressing the bloating directly here, but more so the water retention and fluid buildup in the body, which could in turn help to reduce bloating, depending on whether your bloating is coming from water retention or from fermentation in the gut. I mean, I suspect it's probably a little bit of both. So the lymph system is a collection of vessels that run like a map across the body, under the skin and around organs. They are connected to lymph nodes, which can be found in places like your armpits and groin. And they're the small shaped bumps you feel, you know, when you're unwell, they're the ones that raise. The lymph vessels contain fluid that collects waste products, toxins, bacteria, viruses, etc. from around the body. And then these products are delivered to the lymph nodes and the lymph nodes in the, in the lymph nodes, a bit of a battle goes on. They attack any pathogens, um, which are basically just bad as they could cause disease. And this is usually when the swelling occurs. So if you have a really active infection, you'll get these raised bumps because this battle is going on. Now, this won't always happen. You won't notice this is happening. But in it, when you've got a really bad infection or a virus, this is when you get those raised bumps. Once the most harmful pathogens have been killed off, these toxins, waste products and dead bacteria are sent to the liver and kidneys through the bloodstream where they'll eventually be filtered out of the body. What's important to note here is that the lymph system cannot transport waste on its own. The fluid begins flowing with assistance for our movement, such as massage or exercise. And if we don't assist it, it can stagnate like a stream, right? That's become blocked. Helping to get the lymph system moving will help to shift any buildup of excess fluid and water retention. And it can help to get rid of that excess LPS, which might be circulating in the bloodstream before menstruation. You know, what we talked about yesterday, uh, last week in the study, and that would certainly be adding to our inflammation levels. So if we can clear the LPS, that would be amazing. There are multiple ways to get the lymph fluid moving, but two lovely self-care methods that you could try are dry brushing before your shower and then using a sort of lymphatic drainage paddle. I don't really know what else to call it. I guess it's a tool. It looks like a paddle after your shower on your skin. So before you shower, you would use a dry body brush and starting at your ankles, you would brush upwards in short bursts, going over the same area about three to five times before moving on to the next section of your leg. And the brush strokes would be fairly firm and short. So say from your ankle to mid calf and then from mid calf to your knee. And you would work your way up from your legs over your bum, your torso, all moving up towards your heart. And then you would go to your arms, starting at your wrists and working your way up to your shoulders. And that process should take about five to seven minutes. I think it really should take about five, but I'm just slow. And then you can jump in the shower and you can totally stop there if you like. And, you know, a body brush is about 10 pounds. So it's a nice and affordable option for most, most of us. But if you want to add another layer, you can get a lymphatic drainage body tool, which 
as I said, it looks a little bit like a paddle and it's made of wood. I think it originates from the gua sha technique that you use on your face. And you would essentially follow the exact same pattern that you took with the body brush, but this time more lightly. Um, and it can be very gentle. And also apply oil first so that you don't pull your skin. I tend to use coconut oil, um, but I am thinking about using squalene, uh, squalene, or squalene, I can't remember how, you, how it's spelled, because it just doesn't block your pores like coconut oil does. And my paddle was £18 from Amazon. And I've linked to that paddle in the show notes so you can see the kind of thing that you're looking for. It's not an affiliate link. There's no commission. So it doesn't matter if you buy it or not. But it's just so you can see the one that I'm using. Now, of course, this process is the most effective when done every day. But honestly, I struggle to fit it in. So, you know, you could try a couple of times a week or whatever works for you. If you can do it every day, that's amazing, but I, you know, I wouldn't worry about it if you can't. Okay, so number seven is taking an anti-inflammatory supplement. Now, as we discussed last week, I don't think the swelling and the bloating is purely down to inflammation alone, but it certainly plays a role as inflammation is building as progesterone lowers and prostaglandins are slowly being released in the uterus to prepare for menstruation from the point of ovulation providing you're not pregnant, right? Those prostaglandins won't be present if you're pregnant. So as we already have higher levels of prostaglandins already, have an endo, it will be, you know, certainly incredibly helpful to lower these. And lowering prostaglandins anyway is one of the most effective strategies for pain relief with endo. And that's what, you know, I always advocate for. Now, to be clear, these supplements are not root cause fixes. I'll move on to those in a moment. These are to help you start feeling better in the short term, but I just want to remind you that anti-inflammatory supplementation is not enough to get chronic inflammation down on its own. We need to get to the root causes, but they do certainly help. So in terms of anti-inflammatories, you could use supplements like magnesium, ginger, curcumin, or fish oil, and all of these have their own unique benefits. So my recommendation is to go back and listen to my episodes on supplements. So that's episodes 130 and 131. Then you can pick one or two that are best suited to you. And when taken consistently, they should really help with your period pain too, because like I said, they'll be lowering those prostaglandins and the prostaglandins are one of the key sources of pain. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes. This episode is sponsored by my new free download, Natural Pain Relief Toolkit for Endometriosis. This four-page guide includes herbal remedies and teas that are in your cupboards already, safe pain relieving supplements, essential oils for self-massage, and much more. There's a method for everyone, whatever your taste and your budget. Some of the options literally range from 40p to £10, so there is a range of things to support you. 
And the chances are that you're going to have some of these in your house already. So I'm hoping that this is a really accessible toolkit for you to get started. You know how I work. I like to make changes from our foundations of health, you know, nutrition, lifestyle. It's not about slapping on a load of like pain relief and supplements um, and kind of masking the symptoms. But sometimes we need a bit of help to get out the pain so we can actually begin to make some changes and feel better. And these are the strategies that I use with my clients when they're stuck in in a rut. They don't have the energy Um, and they're having too much pain to actually be able to take the first step forward. So we just want to ease those symptoms, get them out of pain so we can begin this coaching journey together. So I'm hoping that if you're at this moment struggling to see the woods for the trees and get through some of your current pain, that these methods are going to help you. To get your copy, go to the link in my show notes or just go directly to my website and the link is on the homepage. So that's the symptomatic relief part of the podcast, but now let's move on to addressing these root causes. Now, what I'm giving you is a simple first steps, not the whole protocol for each of these, because that would just be a lot. Now, you don't necessarily have to do entire protocols when you're healing these things. If if you get a response and it's working, that's great. But I just want to kind of let you know that these are the foundational steps. So you might need to do more work to see the difference you're you're hoping for. So number one is starting to balance your hormones. And one of the key ways we can do this is through ensuring we have balanced blood sugar levels, as having dysregulated blood sugar can cause elevated estrogen levels and low progesterone. So this is really the key place I start with when balancing hormones with my clients. And the process is pretty simple, though it takes some getting used to and practice and it's simply ensuring you have protein, fiber, healthy fats and complex carbohydrates with every meal. This is because if we have you know a plate full of refined carbohydrates like white rice or white pasta we're going to get a surge of glucose in the blood which is what carbs break down into right in the gut that's their simplest form glucose and that will elevate our blood sugar levels, and that then creates a cascade of negative effects on our inflammation levels, hormones, energy production, and honestly, so much more. The same goes for a plate of brown rice and starchy veg, or just rice and veg. Yes, these foods are healthy, but they're also rich in carbohydrates, with nothing to minimize the effects of our blood sugar. So first off, we need to choose complex carbohydrates in contrast to refined. Refined carbs break down quickly and easily in the gut, so they flood the system with glucose very quickly. And these are processed foods such as bread, pasta, fries, crisps, cakes, and pizza. But in contrast, complex carbohydrates break down over a period of time, providing the body with sustained glucose release and energy. And these foods include vegetables, starchy root veggies like sweet potato and parsnips, fruits, beans, and whole grains. Now, whole grains really depend on the individual. For some people, they break down slowly. For others, they break down quickly and cause a blood sugar surge. So it's really about how you feel on them personally. For me, I find grains spike my blood sugar. So I can't mix them with kind of, I can't mix them with like, starchy veg or beans they're really they're really kind of 
I need to have them just with low starchy veg and fat and, you know, protein in the form of some kind of nut butter or egg really to ensure that I'm kind of not having this blood sugar spike. And we want to pair these complex carbohydrates with protein and fat because they help to slow down the release of glucose to the blood. Fiber also does the same, but providing you have enough vegetables, you should be getting fiber from there, as well as foods like beans and whole grains and nuts and seeds that you can be putting on your, your food. In terms of ratio, to balance your blood sugar, the ideal ratio is having 50% of your plate covered with low starchy veggies like broccoli and asparagus, for example. 25% of your plate should be a protein source. And the final 25% is split between fat and complex carbohydrates. So we're looking at about two tablespoons or two golf ball size portions of fat and a serving of more starchy complex carbohydrates like sweet potato, root veggies or, or quinoa. Now, depending on your activity levels, you may need more or less starchy carbs this is really very individual. So you need to adjust your serving to what feels best for you. Kind of work within the ratios, but, you know, tweak accordingly. I wouldn't really reduce your fat or your protein size um, because, or I mean, all your low starchy veg size, right? Um, but if you need to increase your, your grains, obviously you can. So if you're still hungry after a meal or finding yourself having blood sugar crashes, Try increasing the protein or fat intake first, but if your carb content is very low, increase your carbs. You Maybe you're just not having enough carbs. Whether that's, you know, whether you're increasing your carbohydrate content from low starchy veggies because they are literally carbohydrates, or in fact, you find that you need a bit of extra starch, you know, and you need higher carbohydrate sources such as sweet potato. In the show notes, I've linked to a great diagram demonstrating what this could look like so you can have an idea in your head. But just to give you an idea, you might have half a plate of a salad of rocket and spinach, tomatoes, cucumber, red onions and asparagus with a piece of salmon, then say half a small avocado and a serving of quinoa, you know, adjusting the grain serving size to your, your personal needs. So this is where I would begin with balancing your hormones. But if this feels triggering for you because it's food related, addressing your gut health will also support your hormones, as well as managing your stress levels with stress relief tactics and supporting your detoxification processes like supporting your liver. All of my episodes on estrogen dominance and hormonal imbalances cover various areas to address when healing your hormones. So you can have a listen to those if you'd like a different option. Or if you get to grips with your blood sugar and you just want to move on to the next step, you could listen to those as well. And you could practice balancing your blood sugar over the course of a month and see what happens with your bloating. I do recommend that you keep, keep it up going forward, not just for bloating, but for keeping endo at bay, for healthy hormones, sustained energy, lowered inflammation, and to prevent the onset of chronic diseases, which blood sugar dysregulation has been strongly linked to. If you want to learn more about blood sugar, I cover it in multiple episodes and I've linked to a couple of them in the show notes, or you can read my book or you can take my course actually, which comes out again in a few weeks. The waiting list is open now. So if you sign up, you'll be the first to hear when it launches. So the link to that is in the show notes. 
Number two is starting to repair the gut. Now, this is a more complex one and tends to take time. And of course, if there's a condition like SIBO, that will eventually need treating. But we can start with some small steps that really, you know, we use with everyone to see whether they respond to these changes. And these are the basic foundations of good gut health. If a client comes to me first, we will try these first line therapies before we go into the more in-depth, in-depth ones. You can listen to my episode, Understanding the Endobelly Part 1, for a full protocol of what we call first-line therapies, which, like I said, are these foundational pieces. And you can implement them over the course of a few months. But to get started, you can try one one or two of these options here now. The first would be to eat 30 different plant foods a week. Your good microbiome, needs an array of different plant foods, fibres and nutrients in order to survive and thrive and to actually ensure the health of your intestines. In fact, your good gut bacteria take certain plant fibres and turn them into key food for our intestinal cells, which helps to keep the gut wall strong. So eating an array of different plant foods will not only help to start creating a healthy microbiome, it will also help the process along of repairing leaky gut. Now I know for those with IBS when they think about eating more plant foods it can be scary because the fiber can often aggravate symptoms but this is different. This is literally about eating any type of plant food. So olive oil counts, coconut oil counts, spices count, fresh herbs count, seeds count, nuts, veggies, fruits, whole grains and beans. So There are lots of options and they all count. And it's actually pretty easy to get in 30 different foods when you consider this wide array of ingredients you have to work with. And, you know, between the elemental diets, you know, I've done two now, I've been on the low histamine biphasic diet in between. And honestly, I don't think there's a diet more restrictive than this. Maybe the autoimmune paleo diet, but it doesn't restrict carbohydrates like this. So I'm not sure. I think this might be the most restrictive diet that I know of. And especially in terms of fiber and carbohydrate content, it's much more restrictive than the low FODMAP diet. And I was still able to reach 30 different plant foods. So basically work with the foods you're allowed to eat if you're on a specialist diet like the FODMAP diet. And it doesn't have to be that you're chucking in loads of fiber. It could be that you're having some olive oil. It could be having that you're having more spices and herbs. And if you get stuck, work with a nutritionist or check out gut health blogs for recipe recommendations. Secondly, if you can, I would also begin reducing your sugar intake. Now, I don't mean fruit, so don't worry about that. I mean added sugar like maple syrup, honey, caster sugar, coconut sugar, corn syrup, rice syrup, added fructose, that kind of thing. Sugar actually feeds an unhealthy microbiome and inflames the gut and changes the composition of the gut microbiome, which can then lead to leaky gut. And of course, we want to heal the gut lining and create a nice balance of healthy bacteria in the gut. Now, I know that this is a big step for a lot of people. Sugar is very addictive. So it may just be that you start slowly. Maybe you start reducing the sugar you add to your coffee by a quarter of a teaspoon for the first week and then move on to half and so on. 
Or maybe you start snacking on dark chocolate with a lower sugar content than a standard milk chocolate bar in the afternoon, like on your afternoon break. Whatever it is, choose a method that feels manageable and sustainable to you. And again, I would implement these changes over the over a month so you can kind of see what happens from cycle to cycle. And you could start with adding the plant foods the first month if you want. Um, and then you could start lowering sugar the next or you could do it all in one go and you could combine these methods with the blood sugar balancing or you could implement them month by month separately. It's really up to you how you do this. Now, again, these are just two strategies and there's generally more to be done with healing the gut, but you might notice that these bring you significant relief. If they don't, then don't panic. This is just the beginning and I normally don't expect to see the to see complete resolution with my clients at this stage. So what I recommend is that you have a listen to my Understanding the Belly part, Endo Belly Part 1 episode, which I've linked to in the show notes. And you can then continue to layer some extra first-line therapies on top of these methods that I've given you today. If neither of these options that I've shared appeal to you because they're food-specific, then that episode will provide you with some other options like chewing properly, mindful eating and stress management, which will all affect the gut. Or if you want to dive deeper, my course walks you through a step-by-step gut healing protocol. So again, you can get on the waiting list for that if you'd like to. Okay, so number three is all about lowering inflammation. And normally in functional medicine, we would begin with food as this is one of the quickest ways to lower inflammation. Now, there is a specific protocol for lowering inflammation with nutrition, which I would normally implement over about a month with a client. But again, I'm just giving you the foundations first to get started. If you want to dive deeper, you can listen to my episode with Dr. Jessica Drummond, which I've linked to in the show notes. I have countless articles on anti-inflammatory nutrition, and I've linked to one or two of those in the show notes. Or you can read my book or, of course, sign up to the course for an exact step-by-step guide to lowering your inflammation. So to start, one of the most powerful things we can do nutritionally to lower inflammation is to eat an abundance of colourful fruit and vegetables a day. Specifically, we're aiming for eight servings of vegetables and two servings of fruit. Now, I understand that for those of you with IBS, this might be hard on your stomach at first and it may take time to build up to this amount of fibre. So do start slowly. However, a SIBO diet or or low FODMAP diet shouldn't prevent you from getting in this amount of fruit and veg a day. You may not be able to get in the whole serving, which is 80 grams because of the portion size limitations. But if you aim for variety, you should be able to get in eight different veggies. So for example, one small red pepper, one medium carrot, one cup of cabbage, four sprouts, one one cup of broccoli, two cups of spinach, one cup of spaghetti squash and half a cup of beetroot are all FODMAP friendly. That's eight right there. And you've got some green, yellow, red, purple and orange in terms of colour. And that's, you know, colour is really the key to lowering inflammation because the more there variation of colours you have, the more variety of antioxidants you have. And it's these wonderful plant nutrients, these antioxidants that lower the inflammation. And just to kind of give you an example of how this could look, you might do, you know, with those veggies that I gave you, 
let's say you had breakfast was, I don't know, scrambled eggs with two cups of spinach cooked through, um, or let's say one cup of spinach cooked through, half a red pepper, because half a red pepper is a serving, and half a cup of beetroot. And then, you know, with whatever else you wanted to put with that. And then your lunch was, say, one cup of broccoli with salmon and the other cup of spinach. And then your dinner could be some kind of stew that had carrot chopped in, cabbage, sprouts. I mean, I pro- sprouts was probably a bad example. You could maybe use something else because that would be weird in a stew, I think. And squash, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to be spaghetti squash. It could be something else. So, you know, the stew could be cabbage, carrot, another veg and squash, right, with protein and stuff. So that's how that could look, just to give you an example. Or you could break it down into snacks as well. So you're aiming for lots of different colours, but with a nice emphasis on dark leafy greens, that's really important, and working your way up to eight servings of veg and two servings of fruit. Again, do this slowly. If you have stomach troubles on a regular basis or if you have gut health issues like SIBO or another condition, you may need to heal that first before you can tolerate that many servings of veg. So don't be frustrated if you can't get there. But just get up to what feels what you feel like you can tolerate and what makes you feel good. And in the beginning, if your stomach is sensitive, start with well-cooked and pureed or mashed fruits and veggies. So for example, have a smoothie for breakfast and a roasted veg salad for lunch, and a soup for dinner. Basically, we're trying to take some of the digestion work out of it for your stomach, so that your stomach can predominantly focus on extracting those lovely nutrients and you have less of an IBS reaction. So ideally, we're working on adding more colour and more fruit and veg to start with, and practice that over the space of a month again and see how your bloating and swelling does. And also see how your PMS and your period responds too, because we're lowering inflammation, so they should respond positively. Now, in the beginning, as your body adjusts to this added fibre, you may find yourself more bloated. And that's why it's important to build up slowly and to focus on well-cooked or broken down foods so your body gets used to it. For example, don't go from two servings of veg a day to eight. Start with an extra serving for a few days or week and then move up to another serving. And of course, have those bloating relief remedies to hand as well to help you through and listen to your body. If you need to adjust or reduce the amount of veg you're consuming, do so, but don't just assume that you can't eat veg. It may be about the serving size, how it's cooked, or the type of veg. So experiment. And you know, remember on the low if you are on a low FODMAP diet or on a, on a SIBO diet, it's really about adjusting to your personal needs. So you can kind of reduce or increase depending on what your body can tolerate. Now, if this feels triggering because it's food related, another way to lower inflammation is by getting enough sleep. Sleep deprivation is one of the key causes of inflammation. So instead of working on your food, you could start here. Now, of course, if you have insomnia, sleep can be a difficult area to master. And again, this is about taking it step by step and in stages. And there's really a whole sleep hygiene process that we could go through depending on the type of insomnia you're struggling with. So we're not going deep here. We're just starting very simply. 
And, you know, let's start with the basic step of giving yourself a nine hour window to sleep. There's really no argument. We all need at least seven and a half to eight hours of sleep a night. That's been shown in the studies. And without that, there are significant changes on our health and it can make managing endo much more difficult because it can worsen pain, inflammation and hormone hormonal imbalances. And um, I provided an article in the show notes on this. Now, as someone who struggles with sleep personally, I want to say to you to not let this panic you and just really allow yourself to work on your sleep with kindness, not beating yourself up, up if you're not at eight hours yet, because it can really take, you know, time to get to if, if you have insomnia. Giving yourself a nine hour window allows your body time to fall into a deep sleep and actually get eight hours of solid sleep rather than getting seven hours or even less because, you know, you took a while to fall asleep or to fall into deep sleep. And this nine hour window shouldn't include reading or scrolling or watching TV. This is literally lights out, eyes closed time. And ideally, this nine hour window should take place across the same period of time every night. So for example, from 10.30pm to 7.30am. The reason we do this is because your body has an internal clock. And this clock lets your body know when to release our waking hormone, cortisol, to wake us up, and when to release our sleep hormone, melatonin, to help us get to sleep. When we have erratic hours or inconsistent sleep patterns, the body doesn't know when to produce these hormones. So we can find ourselves wide awake at 1am and super groggy at 9am. The body relies on rhythm to create its essential processes and so it needs us to follow regular rhythms in order to function. Now of course there will be some nights when you just can't sleep or it's a friend's birthday and you're out late or your child is up sick all night and you know that's just life. So don't you beat yourself up about it but on the whole try to get this regular nine hour window in. I understand that if you have a baby, this is probably not possible. So come back to this when you have your nights back. But otherwise, see if you can begin working on this slowly but gradually. It will probably take some time to adjust. It will probably take moving around your schedule and discipline and practice. But eventually, your body should find its routine and start feeling sleepy around this time. The hardest bit for many of us is us actually having the willpower to put it in place. And I can tell you, as someone who has the habit of working late, it is a daily practice for me. One I don't always do so well at, but one I am always coming back to and endeavouring to do well at every day. If your sleep issues are really extensive, then it sounds to me like you have HPA access dysfunction. So I'm going to do a podcast on that soon, But I also have a whole module on HPS access dysfunction and sleep hygiene in my course. So if you want more guidance and a roadmap for addressing this, then of course you can just add yourself to the waiting list. So that's our three strategies for beginning to address these root causes. And if we're taking the first suggestions that I gave you rather than the alternatives, it'll look like eating protein, fat, fiber and complex carbs at every meal eating 30 different types of plant foods a week, reducing sugar, eating eight portions of colourful veggies and two portions of fruit of colourful fruits a day, or building up to that. So that's four steps. 
And you could work on one step a week. So by the end of the month, you're at all four. Or you could work on one step per month and observe where you are in four months. Choose to do it however you feel is best. And remember that these are foundational steps. They may not totally resolve your PMS bloating, but they're a step in the right direction. And you can then choose to keep going forward if you would like to with some of the other strategies that I've mentioned for continued improvement. And just so you don't drive yourself crazy, I want to remind you that it's natural for us to be a little bit more bloated and perhaps a tiny bit little puffier before our periods. But these symptoms shouldn't be extensive and they shouldn't be affecting our daily lives. So if you can get down to a place where these symptoms feel minimal minimal and manageable, don't drive yourself crazy trying to get a perfectly flat stomach the day before your period, as it might not be totally possible especially because we don't fully understand endometriosis yet. And so there may be an element to this conversation that I'm missing because, you know, we don't quite understand why endometriosis causes this endo belly all the time. I've covered the the areas that we know of so far, but there may be more to it. So I really hope this episode has helped you and has been informative If you find it useful, please share it with others who might benefit and please do let me know and reach out on Instagram. I would love to hear how you get on with this. And finally, remember to consult your doctor when making changes to your diet or supplement regime. I'll see you next week. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I Um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis as always if you like this show please rate review and or subscribe really truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis this episode was produced by the pod farm whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world.